Christianity. A lot of the leftists and liberals and scholars and down into popular uh, rhetoric today will use the Crusades as a sledgehammer against Christianity. Well, look what Christians did in the name of God and stuff like that. And so the problem is when they say those things, they don't typically even really know what happened in the Crusades or why the Crusades happened or the reasons behind them and things like that. So that's what we need to look at today and have an answer for so we're not hit upside the head and pushed around by leftists or unbelievers who use a moment in history against the Christian faith. Cases can be made on all sides for the rightness and the wrongness of different aspects of the Crusades. Because the fact is, like almost all of history as we've been seeing, the Crusades were filled with good motivations and bad motivations, good actors and bad actors. There were legitimately pious, godly men involved with the Crusades and legitimately carnal, ungodly men involved with the Crusades. There were men who acted with honor and chivalry and others who acted with dishonor and uh, anti-chivalry. So I'm going to try and break all that down here in one lecture. What were the Crusades? Well, Nick Needham, uh, historian Nick Needham defines them nicely. He says, the Crusades were a series of military expeditions to the Middle East by Western Catholics, inspired and blessed by the Catholic Church with the aim of recapturing the Holy Land, especially Jerusalem, from the Muslims. Now, the key thing in that definition when we have this discussion of the rightness, the wrongness of the Crusades is the aim of recapturing the Holy Land. Not capturing and making conquest, but recapturing the Holy Land from the Muslims. We'll come back to that, but the Crusades were filled with many different battles along the way. When you talk about the Crusades, of course... That is a term that historians use looking back on them. We call them the Crusades. It wasn't a term they used about themselves. We're going on a crusade. That's not the way they, uh, that's not terminology they used about it. Um, nevertheless, they, so because of that, there wasn't like this is a crusade battle that happened in, you know, 1096, and here was the next one in 1100. There were many, many different skirmishes, many di- different cities that were attacked, and all this stuff happened in not any sort of neat, nice timeline. Uh, timeline. Um, so, it's when you read different books in the Crusades, every single one of them will have a different timeline as to when they mark the beginning and the end of the Crusades, or which battles and fights constitutes a crusading fight or battle. But for our purposes, um, I think the best way to consolidate all of that information is historians will generally consider that though there were many others, there were four main crusades. There were, there were lots of different ones, but out of all of them, there were four main ones, four main crusades. The first beginning in 1096 the fourth ending in 1204. So, within these crusades, many different battles besides just those four, 
small and great alike. And the thing about the Crusades is the bloodshed was vast, the cost financially was great, the cost in lives was great, the journeys were grueling, these guys would travel, I can't recall exactly the geography, but a thousand miles from places like England, all the way on foot and horseback or even sailing different routes to the Holy Land in the east, Jerusalem, that area of the world. Incredibly long, grueling journeys, expensive journeys, journeys where they were attacked along the way, journeys where people died and diseases uh, ran rampant in the camps along the way. And so many of the armies, crusading armies, were greatly uh, decimated by the time they even got to Jerusalem to fight the Turks. Um, And so, so much death and so much blood and disease and all these things. And the rewards and the successes of the Crusades for the West in light of the cost was very, very few and small. And so, the overall impression that I have of the effort of the Crusades is an impression of sadness. Yeah, I read about the history, consider all the information, and I just come away sad that this had to happen the way that it happened. Though, within that sadness and the loss and the unsuccessful nature of the Crusades, it's not without moments and sparks of really great inspiring feats of courage and endurance and faith and masculinity and things like that. There are inspirational moments of history, characters worth remembering involved in the Crusades, which, which make it something uh, worth telling, not just for the, you know, here's what not to do type of lessons. But there are, there are good lessons as well. So, as I mentioned, the four main Crusades began in 1096, the last one in 1204, and it's important to note that the Crusades did not just randomly happen out of nowhere. It wasn't like the Western Christians just said all of a sudden, hey, we're bored, let's go take Jerusalem and fight the Muslims. That didn't, it didn't just happen out of nowhere. They stemmed from a long tradition of warfare between uh, Muslims and Christians ever since the rise of Islam, hundreds of years before 1096. So, There is a history, a standing history of military violent conflict between Muslims and Christians, which uh, we find ourselves still uh, in in violent conflict with them today, Um, or at least by proxy through our Western governments. So that's an incredibly long history of conflict. So with that conflict as the longstanding background, There were other causes that developed that led to the formal beginning of the Crusades. Um, The obvious fact is that in previous centuries, I mentioned the fact that the Crusades were an effort to recapture the Holy Land in Jerusalem. That's because in previous centuries and decades, the Muslims had attacked Jerusalem. They'd attacked cities in the Holy Land. And at different times and places, they uh, captured different places and took them from Christians and from the people who were there first. And not only that, but they committed great acts. And there were, of course, like there's different kinds of Christians, there are many different uh, sects or kinds of Muslims. So some were more peaceful, some were more civilized, 
and treated Christians well. Others were more violent and treated them very poorly. And it was, of course, the violent Muslims that at times carried out great acts of violence. Um, I won't even, I'll spare you all the gruelly details, but pillaging and raping and all of those things they did toward the Christians in the Holy Land. Lots of intentional desecrating of crosses and relics and holy sites or considered holy sites by Christians and pilgrims. They did indeed these abominable things toward Christians and Christian sites. And so these stories, and this was mainly the Seljuk Turks who were really this vile. And so these stories during leading up to 1096 were stories that began to make their way back to the Western Christians. It's a long distance between. Communication is slow in that time of history. But as these stories trickled their way back to the West of, wow, Christians who are making pilgrimages are being abused and captured and all these different things. Um, And, you know, look, hear about what the Muslims are doing to the crosses or to the holy sepulcher of Christ, the tomb of Christ. Uh, This enraged Western Christians, understandably so. And uh, really began to cause a disrest and a desire that, hey, something's got to be done about this. Something has got to be done about this. Christians obviously were in great horror at what was going on uh, from the Turks. So you have that. You have the history of violence with Islam and Christianity. But you also had, during this time, this coincided with the way they saw the attacks on the Holy Land as sacrilege, the fact that there was an increasing view of the importance of relics and the importance of the Holy Land that was being developed during this period. What are relics? Relics are physical remains of saints as well as physical objects that they were known to have touched or owned or things like that or things that Jesus like a cloak of Jesus or something like that. There were uh, claims that they had teeth from some of the apostles. So you could come and you could see these teeth of the apostles or early martyrs and saints or pieces of their clothes, cloths or cloaks, things like that, or a staff from saints. And uh, another example was that there was claims that they had pieces of the cross which Jesus was crucified on. And it was said that there were so many pieces of the cross that you could make hundreds of crosses out of them. So um, <laughs> it was a profitable uh, business to be in, the relic business. Is that you, could, the, the, you think the prophet or was it superstitions based on some kind of... Both. Yeah, both. You had the, on the one hand, you had, we can sell these relics for profit. On the other hand, the church was teaching normal Christians that you can receive grace through these relics and these things. So someone who honors a staff from the Apostle John is going to receive a grace from the Apostle John. Things like, or blessing, or merit, or things like that, depending on what the popes were saying or were teaching at the time. And they would get this idea from, you know, uh, I forget what was it, Elijah in the scripture or, or like the Apostle Paul, how they would touch his garment or whatever to be healed or Jesus' garment to be healed. So they would take those ideas that we see in the scripture and just twist it into this whole industry of relics. <laughs> and of course, 
they would just lie about things actually, you know, like the cross of Christ. Obviously, not all those pieces were pieces of the cross. So uh, there were genuine people who believed in it and were deceived by it and people who profited on it. Like That's like a case with anything in history. There's people who are using it and profiting it and people who genuinely believe what's going on. So, um, of course, Jerusalem and the Holy Land, the place where Jesus walked and had his ministry, was crucified, was buried and raised, that was a land where there were lots of sights to see, lots of relics in that land to see. And so you have the Muslims, the Seljuk Turks particularly, who um, would intentionally desecrate these holy sites and these relics. And that, of course, to the Christians who genuinely believed in the relics, was seen as they were attacking sacred objects, sacred things. And so it was blasphemous. It was sacrilegious. And uh, so it was an offense to their faith. It was an attack upon Christ, the way the Western Christians viewed it. So these were different aspects developing that led to, all right, something has got to be done about this. And uh, it just so happened that one of the things that set it off was the great Byzantine emperor in the east, Alexius Comnenus, he appealed to Pope Urban II in the west to help him fight off the Seljuk Turks who had defeated the Byzantines a couple decades earlier in 1071 or around there. And in their defeat of the Byzantine army, they ended up capturing basically all of Asia Minor, all of the Holy Land uh, a couple decades earlier. And so this um, Eastern Emperor Alexius Comnenus, he petitions Pope Urban II in the West, send an army to help us fight off the Turks. They have captured Asia Minor. They've defeated us and we need help. And it were these Turks who were particularly violent and vile and committed sacrilege against Christians and the Holy Land. So that was a request made from the east to the west. And if you recall from Jonathan's lessons past several uh, times, there was lots of infighting and lots of division between the west and the east, the popes in the west and uh, the eastern church. And... At this point, there were lots of division in the West itself. There were uh, rival popes set up against each other. And that was the case here at this point in time. Pope Urban II, he had been exiled from Rome. He was the Pope of Rome, but then was exiled out. Another pope was put in his place. And I think, I think at this point, I could be wrong, there were three popes at this time. And so Pope Urban II, upon receiving this request from the East, Alexius Comnenus, a bit of Byzantium, he thought if he could be the leader of this populist uprising, this populist move to go and crusade in the Holy Land, this could give him um, power and influence to regain control and power in uh, the church in the West. And he was right. It worked. It was a great political maneuver. So, In 1095, Pope Urban II called a council of clergy and noblemen in France. And on the ninth day of meeting, he preached one of the most epic sermons 
in terms of the impact and power that it had in changing history. And he inspired and called them in there to take up the cause of the Crusades, to rescue the Holy Land from the hand of the Muslims. And apparently it was such an inspiring message that the crowds there responded in a frenzy with shouts of what became the call and the, um, the motto of the Crusades, God wills it, or Dus Volt in Latin. That was the motto, God wills it, Dus Volt. And that's where it came from in response to this sermon from Pope Urban II. And while it seems that Pope Urban II was simply a political player making political moves to gain power and influence, we have to remember, as Nick Needham reminds us, that, quote, the Crusades were genuine expressions of popular religious enthusiasm. So Pope Urban II, he was simply reading the room. He understood people are feeling this way. We've been hearing these stories about the West. It's not safe to go to the Holy Land. We hear all these stories of bad things the Turks are doing. He's reading the room and capitalizing on the fact that this was a genuine religious enthusiasm that was popular among the people. Hundreds of thousands of Western European men sincerely wanted to free the tomb of Christ from the Muslims as an act of devotion to their Savior. That's what they genuinely believed. This is an act of religious devotion to Christ for me to go and rescue the tomb of Christ or the relics or whatever it was from those who desecrated. So from there, there's all kinds of different fanatical stories about them uh, taking these cloths and sewing the crosses or the, the famous outfit of the knights and the crusaders where they have the red cross uh, that, that, that was sewed on their uniform. That's where it comes from, the Crusades. Um, throughout the century of the Crusades is also where you have a development, which I won't get into, but you have the development of the different orders of the knights. So the Knights Templar, the Hospitallers, um, the Teutonic Knights, different orders of the knights all came from this era or developed during this time. And were Christian men, mostly, who were in this professional vocation of knighthood and crusading. So throughout the Crusades, the popes really capitalized on the religious fervor of the people. And more and more fanatical claims developed throughout the years from the popes. The papacy uh, offered indulgences to crusaders. Indulgences were pardons for sin. Uh, by the time of Martin Luther, you could buy indulgences, so it was very profitable. But there were indulgences that were given away for different merits or feats that you could do. And so if you would go and crusade to the Holy Land, you could be given indulgences. You could be given forgiveness of your sins, which obviously is a theological problem. But that is what people believed and did in large at that time. Um, you had... Not only indulgences, but one pope even promised eternal life to crusaders. <laughs> by what authority he does that, I don't know. But he declares you can have eternal life by crusading. By the third crusade, late 1100s, uh, you could get an indulgence for all of your sins 
by hiring someone to go and crusade and fight. You can hire a knight to fight on your behalf and you would get the indulgence to forgive all of your sins. <laughs> so kind of hilarious, but genuinely people were buying into this, literally and figuratively. The church was teaching that fighting and dying in a crusade was a spiritual act that washed away your sins and potentially give you eternal life. So if you are being taught that and you believe that, of course you're going to take up arms and go. That's what you have to have to have eternal life. Sadly, that sentiment, and that wasn't, again, I'm making broad statements here, that wasn't everyone. Not everyone. Those were developments that happened throughout the century and and change. But for those that did believe that and practice that, that sounds a lot ironically like Islam than Christianity, that you can go and gain eternal life by dying in a holy war. You know, that's, that's the teaching of Islam, essentially. And yet, that developed among the crusaders in the West as well. Now, before the first crusade, which I mentioned happening in 1096, at the behest of the East, asking for help, and they got way more than they bargained for, uh, there was a crusade that happened before that, which is called the People's Crusade, which is interesting and important to note because it was led and inspired by the preaching of a traveling monk named Peter the Hermit. He was a monk, and he traveled, and he was a great preacher. He was very um, persuasive in his preaching. He was powerful and persuading people to do what he was calling them to do. And obviously he was off theologically in, in a lot of ways. He claimed to have these special visions of conquering Jerusalem and things like that. And he preached the Crusades like a Billy Graham crusade. Like it was like evangelism. Uh, but the call was, instead of just simply coming to Christ, come and defend your Lord by fighting in the Holy Land. That was the call. And so throughout his travels and preaching, he stirred up about 20,000 peasants not knights, not noblemen, not trained fighters, but 20,000 peasants to go and march to Jerusalem where they were subsequently slaughtered by the trained uh, Turkish and brutal military. So it was really foolish. But uh, however, Peter the Hermit, uh, he actually evaded death during that crusade and he was actually there when the first real crusade in 1096 happened which was a successful crusade from the west they did conquer recapture jerusalem and had victory over the uh, turks and so peter was there and of course was glorying in victory (laughs) at this crusade so that was the first crusade eventually you had the turks reconquering the area years later you know after the crusades the problem is they captured jerusalem but they had to go back home and so these weren't people who lived there to keep it and defend it and when they left to go home that leaves it vulnerable to attack once again and so of course the turks who had part of their religion as world conquest through the sword and therefore once the area was weakened Crusaders left, knights left, they recaptured the area years later, which led, of course, to the second formal crusade. Well, now the West realizes that the Turks have got Jerusalem back, so now we got to go back and fight again. 
the main figurehead of the second crusade is a guy that you might recall from one of Jonathan's lectures who was not a pope, he was not a knight, he was not a warrior, he was a preacher. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux, he was a very influential figure of his time. He was a very, uh, indeed, genuinely godly spiritual man. He was someone that the reformer Martin Luther would speak very highly of. Martin Luther esteemed him as a great preacher because he preached Christ uh, so excellently, Luther said. Bernard of Clairvaux was one of the greatest preachers of the Middle Ages. He was nicknamed the honey-flowing teacher because his sermons seemed to drip with the love of Christ. So contrast Bernard of Clairvaux, the Second Crusade, with Pope Urban II and the First Crusade, you have the first one, a pope kind of seizing on an opportunity. And you have a genuine godly man, a great preacher, in the Second Crusade who inspired the Second Crusade. Now, the pope at the time of the Second Crusade, his name was Pope Eugenius III, um, he, did, he did ask Bernard if he would kind of promote the Second Crusade but the Pope kind of knowing, hey, Bernard's this really influential godly preacher. I'm not as influential as him. He kind of had the smart move politically to have Bernard de Clairvaux promote the crusade. Bernard agreed because he genuinely believed in the cause. And so began preaching and stirring up people to take up the cross and go to Jerusalem. Here's an excerpt from a typical sermon you might hear if you were alive in the uh, 11th or 12th century and you heard Bernard of Clairvaux preaching in a cathedral, you would hear him declaring something like this, quote, The earth trembles and shakes because the king of heaven has lost his country, the country where once he appeared to men, where he walked among them for more than 30 years, the country made glorious by his miracles and holy by his blood, the country where the flowers of the resurrection first bloomed. And now, because of our sins, the enemy of the cross has begun to lift his, uh, lift his blasphemous head there and to devastate with his sword that blessed land of promise. The great eye of providence surveys these acts in silence. It wishes to see if there is anyone who seeks God, anyone who suffers with him in his sorrow. Anyone who will restore his heritage to him, I say to you, the Lord is testing you. So you can see if you have a guy who has, you have a lot of trust in, who's a great preacher, who's been a great influence on you, and he begins to really say, look, God wants you to do this, you're going to be very much influenced by that. And you can see, even if it doesn't seem persuasive to us today, that's because we live hundreds of years later. If you lived then, in that time, in that place, and you were a medieval person, and you had the high trust of the church that you had, and of a guy like Bernard, you can see how persuasive this would have, this would have been. So, armies are stirred up to go and take on the second crusade behind the preaching of Bernard de Clairvaux, However, this crusade, simply put, was an unsuccessful, absolute 
disaster. It was absolutely humiliating defeat for the Western Christians, and they went home, those who survived, with their tails tucked. And Bernard de Clairvaux's response to this, I think his response shows that he was genuine in his belief, even though he was wrong about you know God willing this and things like that. His response to it shows he was genuine because his response was a response of humility saying, look, this happened because of our sin. And this is what he said. He said, it seems that our sins have provoked the Lord and he has forgotten his pity and has come to judge the world before the appointed time. He has not spared his own people. He has not spared even his own name. The pagans say, where is their God? We promised victory. Behold, desolation. So his response was, we messed up. We, we must be in sin. And I think that's a pretty good response to something like that. And um, so that was Bernard of Clairvaux, the second crusade. Well, in the late 12th century, you eventually had the third crusade. Now, this third crusade is probably the most popular of the crusades in popular history. Because it involved two of the most famous medieval characters, that being King Richard the Lionheart. Yes, that's King Richard I of England, the Lionheart. And on the Turkish side, you had the great military strategist uh, Saladin. Uh, I don't know if he's called King Saladin or what, but Saladin, the great. So you had uh, King Richard of England I, who was called the Lionhearted, and the Turkish military strategist Saladin. These were two of the greatest warriors, two of the greatest military leaders, two of the greatest military strategists of their time. They were experts in warfare as contemporaries and experts in even facing off against one another. King Richard I of England, Richard the Lionheart, is a historical figure worth noting he was a mighty figure as a young man in a world which the medieval world at that time was a much more rough world than we can even imagine. Um, the luxuries that very poor people have today, they had, you know, was so foreign to them. It was such a more rough world for even the nobility of, of the medieval times. And so Richard the Lionheart was a mighty figure as a very young man in a very rough world. Uh, he's around 30 years old when he uh, was in the, the prime of his career as a military fighter and strategist. And the great thing about guys, uh, kings during this time, like King Richard I, and all the kings who participated in the Crusades, and guys like Saladin on the Turkish side, they weren't just sitting back in their castles having their armies or peasants go fight for them. They themselves were taking up the cross. They themselves, I mean, Richard himself was the strategist, literally himself leading in battle, leading in um, frontline fighting um, against the enemy. So they believed what they were doing. They put their own life and blood and welfare on the line in battle. And Richard was one of the greatest of the entire crusading era. By all accounts, 
He was, a, he was genuine in his faith and mighty in battle. I mean, think about for a second the name Lionheart. Okay, that's not his last name. That's not the name at birth. That was the name given to him by people who saw his exploits and his deeds and said, this is a lion-hearted man. That, I mean, you don't just get that name for no reason. You had to show a great lion heart of courage and bravery. And indeed he did. A contemporary of Richard, a contemporary English chronicler wrote this of Richard. He said, quote, so great were the man's strength of body, mental courage, and entire trust in God. Not only was this, we know this isn't just hagiography where you have historians speaking overly highly, kind of embellishing history because it's their king or their guy they like, but even uh, contemporary Muslim chroniclers of the Turks wrote this about King Richard. Quote, he, the accursed one, was brave, valiant, and expert in battle. So even his enemies testified, hey, this is a brave, he, he gives us the night terrors. He's a brave, valiant man, an expert in battle. It was said that in battle, he would often look like a porcupine because of all the arrows that would be sticking in him that would be stuck in his armor. Of course, as an aside here in terms of military history, the uh, military equipment of the Western armies was far superior to the uh, Turkish armies, far more advanced. Their, their armor, the chain mail armor, was uh, incredibly advanced for its time. So therefore, they could take hits from Turkish arrows, and it would not pierce. It would just stick in their armor. It wouldn't pierce them if it hit them in the right spots. And so one of the facts of the Crusades, just militarily speaking, is the Turks far outnumbered the Western English or French or whatever Western crusaders there were. The numbers far exceeded them by tens of thousands. And yet you had these smaller um, Western armies winning a lot of these battles, holding their own. Uh, Richard's army was significantly smaller. I don't know the numbers, but significantly smaller than Saladin's army. Think of, like I mentioned earlier, the thousands of miles they had to travel on foot, getting attacked along the way, men dying of disease along the way, of hunger along the way. So they have a depleted army showing up to fight. And yet somehow, in many cases, of course they lost a lot, but they also, in many cases, like with Richard, won and beat far greater numbers because one, the incredible military advancement of the armor, and they, of course during this time was the development of Western Christians where they had, I forget what it's called, but the, the uh, what, what's it called where you have the bow and arrow, but it's the gun that shoots, the cross, yeah, the crossbow. That, uh, the, the um, technology of the crossbow was seriously advanced at that time that the Western Christians had and the Turks did not at first. And these things, I mean, these things were like, Proto guns, okay? They were serious damage could be done with them. And so, not only that, but you had guys like Richard who were just legitimately experts in military tactics and warfare and strategy. So, that was recognized. And so, the Muslims, you had them just throwing bodies at these people where 
the Western Christians had to be tactical and strategic, just facing. It's a lot like in Lord of the Rings, just orcs without care for life, just millions of orcs pouring in on a smaller, you know, uh, army of Gondor or whatever. So that's the idea here. Um, so incredible mental fortitude, courage, and strength in battle from guys like Richard and the men that he led. So it was said that he looked like a porcupine in battle at times, arrows stuck in his armor. He just, you know, plucking them out, you know, whenever he's got a chance, continue to fight. And you imagine you're a Turkish fighter and you see this, this guy fill these things and he's unfazed and just pulling them out and, and, and going after guys. That's going to strike fear in you when you see these guys dressed in, in advanced armor, doing that kind of thing, you can see the, the, the fear it would strike in the enemy. Ironically, just as an aside, because I'm talking about Richard here, ironically, he died later on in life, not in a crusade, but in some other ill-advised battle, some petty dispute he had with some lord, and he went to attack his castle, and he was careless in battle because he was arrogant, and it was an arrow that struck him in just the right spot. He went to pull it out, and the arrow was. He pulled the the stick of the arrow out. The arrow was still there, and he knew, yeah, "All right, I'm dead." And so he ended up dying from that. Uh, but before that, pride came to his destruction. He was mighty and courageous in battle. Nevertheless, other historians describe him like this. At six foot five inches tall and of an athletic build, Richard was an imposing figure of a man. Six foot five, especially in that day, was pretty tall. The sight of him was a pleasure to the eyes, and his hair was between red and gold, and his arms were powerfully made for drawing a sword and wielding it most effectively, and with not insignificant addition of his suitable character and his habits. He was well-educated and articulate. He was a figure worthy to govern. In fact, you see his character in the fact that when he went on the crusade to take up the cross, he sold a lot of his own property uh, to increase his war chest to be able to fund these crusades because it was extremely expensive and costly. And, of course, there was taxation they put on their people and things like that. But it was not hypocritical. He sold a lot of his own property and privileges to uh, fund his own crusading adventures. And he explains his reasoning as why he did this. He says, this is the words of King Richard. He said, quote, To serve the living God, we too have accepted the sign of the cross to defend the places of his death that have been consecrated by his precious blood in which the enemies of the cross of Christ have hitherto shamefully profaned. And we have taken upon us the burden of so great and so holy a work. So you see, his money was where his mouth was. He believed what he was doing. He had a great conviction to do what he did. One historian says that Saladin himself thought King Richard so pleasant, upright, and magnanimous, and excellent, that if the land were to be lost in his time, he would rather have it taken into Richard's mighty power than to have it go into the hand of any other prince whom he had ever seen. It was said that Saladin feared the entire crusader, 
crusader army less than he feared Richard by himself. He would often lose sleep at night, not knowing where Richard was, knowing he was somewhere out in the dark, fearful that in the night Richard might come to have his life. Despite the great celebrity of this third crusade, the third crusade was rather anticlimactic in certain ways. Richard did not end up capturing Jerusalem. Neither was he defeated at Jerusalem. They did, in fact, capture another very, very important city, the city of Acre, A-C-R-E, which, economically speaking, was more important than Jerusalem at the time. And because of the mutual respect between Richard and Saladin, Richard was able to strike a bargain or a truce with, with Saladin, which allowed uh, Acre, which was now belonged to the Crusaders, to have peaceful access to Jerusalem and protection for those who would go to and from. So, uh, geopolitically, this was kind of actually the best result of all the different Crusades. Um, you got peace without war to the death in Jerusalem. Yet, this compromise kind of betrayed the religious fervor which the Crusaders very much believed in. The whole point was we need to free Jerusalem from the infidels here who have it and are degrading it. And yet, Richard... Uh, showed wisdom, really, I think, in knowing when to strike a deal and when, and when to fight. There's so much more that could be said about Richard and the, and the battles he was in, but we'll, we'll move on. I encourage you, if there's one figure to look up, uh, he would be one of them to look up and read more about. Of course, he had his faults and his errors, uh, but... Every great character does. So the fourth crusade, which came, of course, a few years later, it was a complete disaster. It was the worst of all the crusades. It was the darkest moment, I think, in all of the medieval era. And that is because what happened was the Western, in short, the Western crusaders ended up not going all the way to Jerusalem. They stopped in the eastern empire city, capital of Constantinople. And the crusading army ransacked it, raped, pillaged, destroyed their brothers and sisters, the eastern Christians, Constantinople. That was in 1204 when this happened and didn't even go on to Jerusalem. They just totally destroyed it, raped and pillaged for material gain and left. Completely dark time in history. Christians doing this to Christians. Uh, That's why I say I come away from the Crusades with just a lot of sadness that why in the world did this happen the way it happened? What were they thinking? This, of course, the sacking of Constantinople by Christians... Remember, the Crusades initially began with a call from help, call for help from the East. And then eventually, of course, it's a century later, they just come in and kill them. And 
the fall of Constantinople to the crusading army in 1204, of course, as you can imagine, hastened the fall of the great, truly great Christian Byzantine Empire. And uh, uh, Byzantium's weakness from the defeat by the Crusaders paved the way for the Muslim conquest and capturing not only of Constantinople, which to this day is now Muslim territory, but it paved the way for their conquest of all of that area of the world, Eastern Europe, Middle East, which, as I said, to this day remains in Islamic hands, and that's where it goes back to. Christians killed Christians, and we have what we have today because of it. So that's the dark period of the Fourth Crusade. There was another crusade that happened shortly after this, and it also was a terrible event, but for different reasons. After this Fourth Crusade and what happened at Constantinople, there were obviously those who realized what just happened. What have we done? What did the crusading knights and armies do? And the good preachers of the day were saying, well, it's our lack of success in the Crusades is because we're sinful, because of our sin, because we're impure. We are not innocent people, and so God's not giving us success in battle. Hey, that's a good start of repentance, I think. But (laughs) their answer was, if we need purity in our military, who's the most pure among us? Children. They're the most pure. They're the most innocent. And so you have what is called the Children's Crusade, where they sent children, young boys, off to crusade, thinking, hey, they're pure, they're innocent, so God will give them success. It's going to be a great miracle. They're going to, like, march around like Jericho, and the seas are just going to fall and that kind of thing. Of course, this was a disaster. Most of them were just taken and sold into slavery. Completely, completely could have been avoided and was just ridiculous. So that was the children's crusade. Again, as I've said, there were many other battles, even after that and before that and all in between. Those are the main ones. Um, I will just mention something else worth reading if you want to look into it more. This came years later. Uh, I don't recall the exact years, but it was definitely towards the end of the 13th century. You had King Louis IX of France. Um, he is St. Louis, which St. Louis, Missouri is named after. If you go to St. Louis, Missouri, there's the statue of St. Louis, King Louis IX of France on his horse. And back in, what, 2020 or so, when all the Black Lives Matter riots were happening and there was cities being burned, property being destroyed, statues being toppled, there were, uh, this was King Louis IX's statue in St. Louis was one of the statues that these rioters were trying to topple because he was a later crusader and he fought against the Muslims, so he was a racist and all this stuff. And amazingly, there was a conservative... Uh, Roman Catholic group in St. Louis, literally, there were you know priests out in their garbs, 
making a human wall, a human shield between the rioters and the statue of King Louis the Ninth, St. Louis, and they kept it from being destroyed. So it's still there in St. Louis now. Uh, but anyway, there's a reason he had a city in America named after him because he was an incredibly noble, honorable king. He was probably the most, even more so than Richard. Richard had a lot of things you could accuse him of. Richard had a problem with women. And so you could question the sincerity of his faith. I think that was just a big, big sinful area of his life as a king. And uh, he was still genuine. But King Louis IX of France was in every way impeccable in his character and his devotion to God. He was very explicit, articulate, and outspoken about doing things for the faith of Christ, the faith in Christ. And he fought many battles um, against invading Islamic armies. He was captured. Um, in fact, he spent years as a prisoner of war by the Turkish military. And they, of course, would behead a lot of the POWs. They would capture the crusade, you know, to make an example out of them. They would torture them. But obviously, if you got the king of France, you're not going to just kill him. You're going to keep him as a great piece to, you know, in the game, in the political game, to be able to have leverage against the West. So they kept him alive along with other noble knights who were captured with him. And they were tortured. They, were, they, they wanted to get these kings, like King Louis, who was a great Christian man, they wanted to get him to recant his faith through torture. Because if they could do that, then others would follow suit. And lesser knights and noblemen did recant under torture. But King Louis never recanted. He never for a second did. And it was pure amazement not uh, by the Turkish people who captors, they were amazed at his resolve. There's things you can read about what they said about how amazed they were at the genuineness of his faith and resolve. His own military men that he was in prison with were just amazed at the fact of his resolve and his courage and conviction. Where eventually he was freed and let go, and uh, ended up dying later. But he didn't die in in capture like that. And he remained faithful to God through it all. And was very clear about that. Like, this is why I'm doing it. If I'm going to be martyred, let me be martyred. And that's how he viewed it. So he's, he's someone worth remembering. And a reason why there's a city named after him. And he's worth protect, protecting and honoring his namesake, like was done here recently. So... There are a few questions to be considered about the Crusades as we think about how do we think about them? How do we categorize all this different information? The big thing is, were the Crusades justified? Were they justified? Was it an offensive or a defensive war from the Christian perspective, from the West? Well, I read this phrase somewhere, this summary somewhere, and I thought it was a great line, and I think it's spot on. And that is that the Crusades were defensive in principle, if not always in practice. They were defensive in principle, if not always in practice. So they were justified in principle if they weren't always carried out the right way in every instance. And I think that's a very accurate summary of how we should think about them. 
In other words, the original mission of the Crusades was a reaction, a response, not an aggression, not an initiation. It was a reaction and a response to Islamic aggression and expansion. Even though the Crusaders didn't always act chivalrous, even though they didn't always attack the right people, the idea and the principle of it was justified and right. The other thing, and this isn't really a question so much as it is a sad consequence to consider, and as I mentioned, this is the biggest blunder to me of the Crusades, was the turning of their sword upon the Eastern Church at various moments. There was no reason for it at all. It was the worst thing that happened during the Crusades, in my opinion. And at best, the aggression toward the Eastern Christians, the best possible motivation you can assume, you can, the, the most best assumption you can make is that the West was genuinely thinking that it was their duty to put to death heretics. That's the best possible assumption you can have. I wouldn't view all of Eastern Christians as heretics like that. In fact, Roman Catholics, they've got some heresies of their own to deal with. So that's the best possible assumption. We see by their actions of looting and raping that we don't need to assume the best <laughs> in what they did. Um, but the sad consequence of that, of course, resulted in even more division than there already was. Even more distrust between the East and West than there already was. Imagine how successful the Crusades could have been, how right they could have been done, if the West legitimately answered the call for help by their Eastern brothers. They if they were legitimately united together and bringing them military aid against Muslim aggression, they could have fought them off together, they could have strengthened the East so that when they left, there wouldn't be any more attacks or threats. But instead, they even turned on them. And even from the Eastern Christians, they weren't just innocent bystanders either. There were times where Eastern Christians as well joined Turkish armies to fight against Western Christians. You could say it was because of the brutality and the aggression of the Western Crusaders. But nevertheless, they also fought against the West, their fellow Christians, even though they viewed each other not as Christians, but as being heretics. So all that to say, it was a big, sad mess. Consequences for church relations, uh, relations with Islam, things like that. Because I think one of the principles that we should learn from church history is that I think it's so important that the Christian church maintains a good spirit of Catholicity, a good spirit of uh, brotherhood across Orthodox denominational lines. Um, have the in-house debates, have them, but have them in-house. Let the in-house debates actually be in-house. And let us face the world, face the flesh, face the devil, face the enemy together in a united front. I think that's something we should strive to see and do and learn from history. Because when we're divided, we're, we're weak, we fall, and that's what happened.
There's a few virtues, I would say, on the other hand, that we should glean from the time of the Crusades and certain figures of the Crusades. And that is, one, a simple masculine toughness and not just brute masculinity, because that's the Turkish side. That's the bad Crusaders was a brute masculinity, which is a misuse of masculinity. It's unbiblical masculinity when you're brutal and unjust. But there is a godly Christian masculinity that's really, really tough that you see in guys like King Louis IX, in uh, Richard the Lionheart, in other figures, where they endured legitimate, just incredible physical pain, sickness, literal battle wounds and attacks, uh, torture in prison and capture, and maintained through it all a self-control to act in a chivalrous way. That's you know, medieval ages where you have the idea of chivalry come into play, where there's certain rules of warfare that Christians are to have. And there's something good to be gleaned from that, from these good figures. We're pretty, pretty soft today and pretty unchivalrous in our softness, which is ironic. But in the toughest of guys, the best of warriors, the best of legitimate fighters, you also have a godly spirit, chivalry, and justice. The other thing to glean from the Crusades is the power, the persuasiveness, and the place of preaching in a society, either for better or for worse, for good or for bad. It was preaching that was one of the main things that drove the Crusades, like we saw, for good or for bad. And so it's good preaching or bad preaching that has a persuasive, and I believe should have a persuasive place in society that's fallen a lot in our day but I think there's still places where it's there and obviously we should want good and right biblical preaching to persuade us to do things in the right way there's a great line if you've read uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick the great American novel there's a great line early in the novel and I forget the exact line I didn't write it down where he talks about the pulpit being the utter of the ship of society. And that was something he recognized, you know, what was that, 1800, 1700, something like that. Just until recent, the last century, has it been the case that preaching was seen as this important persuasive place where the pulpit really steers where the people go in a society. I think that's still true, and I think we need to regain that sort of thing. And that requires, first of all, preachers who do have influence, because it's not like there's no preachers with no, like we're all small churches like this, where we have pretty small influence in society. But there are tons of preachers today who still have massive influence in society on TVs, stations, radio, massive millions of people online. But the problem is, those preachers, most of them, you have exceptions, guys like John MacArthur, who've been faithful with that great influence. But most of them don't use that to persuade people in the right way um, or preach biblically. So that's an important thing to, to learn for good or bad. That's the power and the place of preaching in society. And we need to steward it well. 
it'll be good or bad consequences. And the other thing kind of goes with the first thing I said, and that is the fact that these men like Richard, Lewis, Bernard Clairvaux, even Peter the Hermit, who was kind of whacked out, they had a conviction of what they believed. They had the courage of their conviction to act and endure in acting on what they believe. So often we might get enthusiastic about something and start working towards something, and then when it gets hard, well, we'll, we'll back off. We'll do something else. Or when we face opposition, well, we'll, we'll stop. We'll stop fighting. But to have a courage and conviction to continue in the face of opposition, danger, fighting, obviously we want the right convictions. And when we've got the right convictions, we want to have the courage to maintain those convictions. One very last thing that I think is really important for us to remember, especially in light, as I mentioned at the beginning, of the leftist use today of taking the crusade and saying, see, this is what Christianity is, and bashing us over the head with it. Let's keep this in mind. Consider this angle on the crusades. Despite all the messiness of the crusade, despite all the good and the bad things that happened, one of the results was that Western Christians, even though they really failed at retaking Jerusalem overall, they did it certain times, but overall they failed. Islam defeated the Byzantine Empire and expanded. They failed. But despite that failure, legitimately, the Western Christians, one real result was that they kept Islam in relative bay. They kept Islam at bay. Islam didn't want to stop with the Byzantine Empire. They wanted to. Keep, they still want to keep going and expanding west and destroy the west. They're doing that today in other ways. But that generation, those generations of crusading armies, though they failed in a lot of their crusades, they were successful in keeping Islam in the east, in the Middle East. They were successful at not letting the West be lost at that point in time. Islam wanted to conquer by the sword and conquer the West. They wanted England. They wanted to take Richard and take England all the way. But it didn't happen. They didn't, it didn't happen. The West succeeded in standing their ground. And that's a good thing that we need to recognize happened Even with all the faults of the West, it's a good thing that the West was able to stand their ground and not allow continued conquest of Islam. These crusades and many other battles and moments where the West took a military stand against a military aggressor was a noble, courageous thing, and it was God's providential preserving of the West through that time period, through the medieval ages. If they didn't take a military stand, the West falls, England falls, and the medieval ages become a story of Islam instead of a story of Christianity. And in that providence, we have to see that as God's providence, and as we should do with all God's providences, be grateful for them, be thankful for them. Because if that didn't happen, one historian puts it this way, He says, quote, Many Christians today are quick to denounce the men who fought against Islamic expansion as racist, xenophobic, 
etc. Rather ironically, such modern-day Christians fail to realize that without their ancestors' sacrifices, they themselves would very likely be Muslims today, as most of the descendants of the once fiercely Christian Middle East, North Africa, and Turkey, the Byzantine Empire, are today. So, I say, let us thank God for our ancestors. Mistakes were made, bad decisions were made, sins were committed, but they had the courage to stand and fight, literally. And in so doing, God used them to preserve the Christian West, which resulted in America as we have it today. So we should learn from their sins, learn from their mistakes, and not fall into the same errors while at the same time giving thanks to God that we're here today because of what they did then. Let's thank God in prayer.